just to point this out, the 2309 Bloodwine shows up again in this episode. And it'll actually show up twice more in the future. I love these recurring elements. So here we are. Here we are, talking about Core. Of course they bring Core back for this, and I'm really happy they got the chance to. Um, we also saw see an older Klingon, Darok. Now, I saw him and I was like, wait, he looks familiar. Why does he look familiar? He kept bugging me and bugging me, so I finally looked it up. He played Klieg, or Clegg, I forget his name. Exactly. The uh, <clears throat> overly strident instructor over in the Voyager episode Natural Law, who tells, who gives Tom Paris a flight lesson, you remember him? It's, I don't know why, that just clicked with me immediately. Anyways. So, <clears throat> the episode begins. Um, Quark, of course, is like, no, you can't go to Worf. You don't understand. Worf's not good for you. Gives this whole speech. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's actually quite amusing to watch. What I wonder is, how long do you think Quark was practicing that speech before he decided to give it to Ezri? My goodness. And Ezri, of course, lamenting that she's had the same conversation with everyone. Oh my god, no, it's you. I do see a little bit of them in you. Blah, 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 blah. Then we get to the proper episode. So Kor goes to Worf saying, can I please die properly? And Worf's saying, yeah, of course, I'll go to Martok. Hey, Martok. And Martok says, I'd rather die. And he, Wait, what? What could you have against him? <laughs> it's actually funny because even before we find out the backstory, animosity between the two feels very natural, doesn't it? In fact, it is the naturalness of that that actually brewed the idea of this animosity to begin with. Kor has always portrayed himself kind of aristocratic. The noble general in the front lines. I would relate his overall style kind of similar to what Picard does, if Picard was a lot less reserved. But same concept, right? Picard you could buy being an aristocratic leader. I don't mean that as an insult, by the way. It's just a different command style. Whereas Martok, <laughs> I mean, he's a grun in a good way. He's a gropo. And he's the kind of guy who carries his flag on a bird. So... Yeah, you can see the automatic variation between them. And Martok, meanwhile, who I remind you once again is a brilliant strategic commander, that comes up with the idea for a cavalry raid. One of those little things we have to accept is that space combat and space travel and space everything doesn't work the way it was, does in science fiction. I actually spent a little bit of my life studying this, and people far smarter than me have spent most of their life studying this. If we actually did have the, the propulsion abilities and the warp capabilities and the weapons of, say, Star Trek, space combat and space travel still wouldn't work that way. The, the physics just don't apply. It's different. And it's hard for me to explain that because I'm an idiot who's only studied a little bit. But I bring this up because it gets hard to approximate military tactics when it comes to a space situation because we're kind of accepting a rule set, a rule set that's not really hard codified. It's like playing a board game, but you don't actually have the rules to the game, so you kind of make them up as you go. So, that being stated, the, the core idea, no pun intended, of a cavalry raid, yeah, that makes sense. You get light, nimble, fast ships to go back behind enemy lines and cause damage, and then to get the hell out of dodge. It's a basic hit and run. And Klingon ships are the only ones that could really be viable in this kind of circumstance. So, okay, I'm willing to buy it. Now, <laughs> the, 
This is when we find out about the backstory. Martok, who, I remind you, strategic genius and tactically adept, it, who is a great leader and probably one of the best Klingons ever, the only other one I would say is in the running for that is actually Worf, is someone whose career was almost completely torpedoed because Kor dismissed him because he was of the wrong bloodline, because he was a commoner. This is further accentuated because Mar to Martok, this has been a huge mark of shame for his entire life that he carries to this very day because he was never able to show his father that he really did make it into the officer's track, which he did. Kor doesn't remember Martok. <laughs> it's always one of the worst things, right? You destroyed my life and I've spent my whole life looking for you and the other person says, who are you? For me, it was a Tuesday, I believe, is the name of the trope for that. And so for Kor, he's just like, I, I mean, I might have. I had a lot of lists, Worf. That was a long time ago. And Worf's like, he's still an unworthy reason to deny him. Which is, of course, what Worf would think, because Worf tends to believe in a form of a meritocracy. Whereas Kor, <laughs> this is when Kor starts to lose us, the audience, because Kor starts to act like an aristocratic noble in the bad sense of the word. Ah, you've been amongst these humans too much. You're of noble blood. I'm of noble blood. We're of the Imperial House. That means something. If, if Martok was a true Klingon, it would mean something to him. He is unworthy. Okay, Kor. Listen, why don't we slice it open, see how pink your blood is. That's like a double reference if you get that one. Now... This is also kind of interesting. So Core, we see as the combat starts to progress, Core is starting to lose it. As much as Core can go to hell, I do have to admit a degree of pity and sympathy for him. Core, who is a Klingon, who is a warrior, who is a noble, who is a legend, is losing his mind. And it's getting difficult for him to think straight, to concentrate, and to pay attention. For every single piece of those things I just mentioned, that would be a bother. Imagine any Klingon who lives long enough to start actually having atrophy and mental degradation. Think about how horrible that would be for any Klingon, for any warrior, for any noble, for any legend. So in the middle of the battle, he takes command <laughs> and does incredibly the wrong thing. Martok tries to kill him to get his ship back, which is actually interesting in its own right, because I don't blame him. That was literally a kill this man or lose the ship kind of a situation. So Martok actually made the correct call there. It's only because Worf was already up and about that he had an alternate solution. Knocking out Kor and taking over. Yeah. So they barely escape and things have gone badly. They've lost a ship. Yay. What follows is actually my favorite scene in the episode. Kor is sitting quietly by himself, eating. Now, already that's unusual. Klingons don't usually eat in silence or solitude. They, they, they get big and loud and talk and grog and react to each other. One of the things I've said many, many, many times is that Klingons are all about how you react. They're all about provoking a reaction. Now, I'll kill you! And then you respond, oh yeah, well then I'll rip your eye out. And then that being a correct response, they'll be like, ha 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 ha, we're, we're friends now. You know, Klingons, right? I get it, it makes sense. That then makes Kor's reaction, his response, even more chilling. Martok comes in, and along with the two women, whose names I can't remember right now, please forgive me, one of them is played by an actress who was also in Voyager, she does a good job there too. 
they they all just mercilessly mock and make fun of Mar of Kor. And they're constantly belittling him. And you can see how Martok is getting more and more frustrated the more he's doing it. Why? Because Kor's not reacting. Kor, a Klingon, gives no reaction. That in itself is chillingly telling. He has no facial reaction. He has no verbal reaction. He has no real physical... The only thing he does is he shoves his tray away at one point. That's it. That is the full extent of it. Damn. And then he gets up and leaves without a word. That is one hell of a reaction. And you can see how much the others are like, in, in response to seeing this. And Martok is legitimately flummoxed. Like, his tone has gone from, <laughs> to, what's going on here? This is just weird. And then he turns around, and I wrote down this whole quote, because it is a wonderful quote. And, I quote, Savor the fruit of life, my young friends. It has a sweet taste when it's fresh from the vine. But don't live too long. The taste turns bitter after a time. Wow. And I have to point out an almost assuredly deliberate reference to him talking about the sweetness of life to the Organians all the way back in uh, Aaron of Mercy. Or whatever the name. Now, that wasn't Aaron of Mercy. Which one was that? The episode he was in in TOS. I can never think of the name of it. It's a good episode. So... With this action, he, I believe, unknowingly, absolutely destroys Martok's revenge. Martok has dreamed of this moment for years, and sheer luck has offered him the chance to not just kill Kor, but to strip him of honor and rank and dignity, and it means nothing. Martok is utterly dissatisfied with this. God, how has that got to feel? How many years has he carried this particular, well, I'd say torch, but that's usually a romantic thing. Um, uh, how many years has he been carrying this book of grudges? Yes. So, they find out the Jem'Hadar are chasing them. Can I just say really quick, it actually irritates me how the Jem'Hadar suddenly have a, a device that can detect while, while ships are cloaked from extremely long range, which is never mentioned before and will never be mentioned again, by the way. And they come up with a technobabble solution. And I'm like, Ugh. and I, I actually physically was just like, oh, come on, you're doing so well, episode. But I'm still willing to let it go. And the reason why is because even though it's a technobabble solution, which irritates me, that isn't actually the solution. That gives them the option to pursue the solution. The solution, well, it's actually a fairly standard military tactic. You are in retreat. The enemy is following. You are leaving behind troops to die in order to stall the enemy so the rest of the army can get away. That is the tactic here. That is a legitimate actual tactic, which also has actual cost to it and doesn't carry a guarantee of success, especially since basically you only want to leave behind as little as possible since you don't want to sacrifice more people's lives than you have to, right? Even in this episode, they bring it down to seven troops, the commander and the six volunteers, and one bird of prey, which is an acceptable loss for this. <laughs> so, Worf, of course, volunteers, and of course he does. By his own logic, he is the correct choice. It's interesting in its own right, because the only reason he doesn't immediately think of Kor is because of Kor's delusional attack earlier. 
If Kor hadn't lost it on the bridge, he would think of Kor immediately. Which, of course, is then amusing because Darok immediately thinks of Kor and says, You got this one? And Kor looks at it like, Yes, yes, this could work. If only you do this such and such. An initial spread of torpedoes. Confuse the sensor readings. Because Kor understands, tactically speaking, that the whole point is what you really need to do is to get their attention and keep it for about ten minutes. Now that may not sound like a long time. In which case, holy crap, I want you to picture ten solid minutes of fighting. Especially in a naval capacity. Just ten minutes of furious fighting against someone who is vastly out outnumbers you and outpowers you. <laughs> so, Kor goes to Worf. I will find your beloved. I will tell him, I will, I will f storm the gates, I will find your beloved, and I will tell her that you still only love her. And it's, it's this great thing, and he leaves, and he even gets a final line, long live the Empire. And there's this wonderful tension on the ship as they're all just waiting, because even if he succeeds for a few minutes, that's not really going to be enough. They will be caught minutes before they are actually able to reach the Defiant and the rest of the fleet. They need the full ten minutes to be able to make that range happen. And, of course, they lose sensor reading, so they have no idea what's happening. All they know is whether or not the Jem'Hadar picked them up again. Which they don't. For ten minutes. Somehow, Kor managed that. We don't know the details, and we never will. The writers went out of the way to not write it. Because, just like Davy Crockett, the particulars don't matter. If you believe in the legend, well, then it doesn't matter. Kor died a hero. If you don't believe in the legend, then Kor is just a man. And it doesn't matter how he died. <laughs> I don't fully agree with that, if I'm being honest, but it's an interesting thought. And in the end, they're all, you know, chanting and singing, except for Martok. That was actually uh, an insistence by Herzler. He refused to sing in that. I actually agree with him completely. He's willing to acknowledge the, the, the result. He's the one who calls, pulls out the blood wine and says, let's do it. But he does not join in the singing, and I, I agree with that. It was a treat to see John Colicos in this show, to see him back as core. It was, it was nice. It was a great callback. And it was not just a callback. It wasn't just there for fan service. It was a way to continue his story, to show how he had and hadn't changed, to show how he was a fleshed-out individual. We actually see the flawed person underneath the legend in multiple episodes, but especially this one. And... John Colicos died less than two years after this episode came out. So, if you'll forgive me a moment for calling for just a few seconds of silence for the man and the legend. Because in the end, only we can decide what we care about the dead. <laughs> 